hyperparameters define the strategy for exploring a space in which a machine learning model is being developed. Whereas the parameters of a machine learning model are the actual data coming into a system, the hyperparameters define how those data points are fed into the training process for building a model to be used by an end consumer. A different set of hyperparameters will yield a different model. Thus, it is important to try different hyperparameter configurations to see which models end up performing better for a given application. Hyperparameter tuning is an art and a science. Richard Liao is an engineer and researcher and the creator of Tune, a library for scalable hyperparameter tuning. Richard joins the show to talk through hyperparameters and the software that he has built for tuning them. We're looking for an engineer who can also write. If you're interested in helping us write articles and contribute content to Software Engineering Daily and prepare for episodes, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I'm also looking for investments. I'm making investments in developer tooling and infrastructure. You can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Thanks. Richard, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Pleasure to be here. Last time, we talked about a bunch of applications that people can build with Ray and some of the higher-level platforms that have been built on top of the Ray primitives. And we meant to talk about hyperparameter tuning in much more detail, but we just got lost into the details of Ray. Today, I'd like to take the reverse approach and just focus on hyperparameter tuning, and then hopefully we can get into to Ray at the margins. But let's just start with hyperparameters. What is a hyperparameter? Yeah, so obviously... In order to sort of explain hyperparameters, I have to give a little bit of context. So I'd like to start with machine learning in general, where typically you have a model and an algorithm that compose like a machine learning task or something that, that does machine learning for you. So, and I, I need to explain what a model is and the algorithm is to really, under, and to really provide the context for talking about hyperparameters in general. So the model is is a representation. It's it's a essentially a data structure. It holds information, and typically, especially for deep learning, these these include a lot of matrices. On the other hand, the algorithm is is the component of the machine learning process that crafts or creates this model. So it decides how to update this model, how fast to update it, what is the particular methodology that we're going to distill information into the model, right? So now we have defined like high-level concepts for model and algorithm. Then we can talk about hyperparameters. So to go back to your original question of what is a hyperparameter, the hyperparameter is typically used to describe uh, settings and configurations for for either or both the model and the algorithm. So it's a configuration value for a list training procedure that um, typically doesn't change during the, the training process. The use of hyperparameters in the development of a machine learning model, can you just go a little bit deeper into why hyperparameters are necessary for machine learning? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think... Perhaps a good analogy is is like when you're baking or when you're cooking. There, the co common joke is that cooking is just like hyperparameter search. You you know like you might have a recipe that works right out of the box, but if you're doing something new or you're trying something something different, there's just so many different decisions that you have to make, and so many different quantities and essentially configurations, um, and everything affects the performance of the final creation. In the cooking analogy, it's your food. In hyperparameter tuning and machine learning, it's the, the model that you're going to use for your business later on. So with that, the uh, sticking true to the analogy, if you include too much of a certain quantity, like in cooking, say salt, then you know your food is going to taste not so appetizing. On the, on the other hand, for in the you know, holding this analogy back to into the machine learning world, if you set, say, the model to be too big, it's possible that the, the final thing that you learn 
is is just not very it's not like you don't learn the right you don't train the right model and it underperforms your expectations Mm, i see so the cooking analogy like we're always looking for the right recipe uh we're always looking for the for the the perfect food dish which which is prepared at the end of the end of the cooking procedure and that cooked dish is the machine learning model that we're going to cook and the hyperparameters are things like how much salt am i adding how how much spice spices uh, am i adding what are the order in which i i do the operations within cooking do i put in the eggs first or do i put in the flour first changing all of these different things will change the end result of the recipe yep i think this uh, analogy will 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 last a while i mean it'll, it'll go pretty far yeah Okay, so it's in that analogy, it's obvious what happens if I put in salt at the beginning of the dish versus salt at the end of the dish. The salt is probably going to be more evenly distributed throughout the food that I'm cooking. What about with hyperparameters? How does changing a hyperparameter change a machine learning run? Right. So that gets into a, a more advanced topic of, you know, these like dynamic hyperparameters during training. Note that this is very different from typical hyperparameter tuning where where you might train a single model with a single set of hyperparameters statically um, until completion and then after after that model is trained you you like iterate again and again and change hyperparameters across different models so that's the way how you might traditionally do it now your question is more about how do we change things in the middle of training and so one example of, or two standard sort of uh, configuration settings that you might change during training is, uh, the first one is called learning rate, and the second one is called batch size. And so this is obviously in the regime of these like neural networks, but learning rate might be changed. Learning rate basically tells me how fast am I, is my model going to train, right? And so that means we have this like, iterative we have say this iterative updating process and every time there's an iteration i update the model a little bit it learns a little bit more and then eventually it it gets to a final like converged state and all learning rate says is per each update of this model right how much how much do i change the neural network and if i change it a lot maybe i could learn faster but if I change it too much, I could totally just destroy, like it, it could just diverge, the, the training could diverge. And so one characteristic of neural network training is that there are certain times where you want to do a long, like a large update and certain times where you want to do a small update. Right, so, so that's learning rate. D- does that sort of make sense? I could talk about batch size right after this. Uh, maybe let's drill a little bit deeper into learning rate. So could do you have a concrete example of when you would want a small learning rate versus a big learning rate? Yeah, yeah, that's actually a great question. So typically you want, so let's see. So you want a small learning rate when you're at the end of training typically. And the reason is because you can sort of think of, you know, your neural network as say like a position on a bowl. Right. And what you want to do is you want you're, you're standing on the edge of the bowl and you want to get to the very, very center, the very, very middle, which is the lowest part. But it's like the best part to be. So you can imagine if you take a step, a descent down into the bowl, you can go very fast by taking a very large step. But once you're in the bottom near the bottom of the bowl, if you're taking large steps, you're never going to step in the middle because you're just going to bounce in and out, in and out of that of that centerpiece. And so with this bowl analogy, eventually you want your updates to, to get smaller and smaller so that you eventually converge into that, that, that very center of the bowl. Now, there's a little bit of art to it, right? Because if you descend, if you decrease your step too quickly, it's possible that you stop moving when you're still not at the very middle of the bowl, right? You're at like the very edge. And so part of the art of hyperparameter tuning now is, is, is all about 
making sure that you know you take these steps in like a smart way and eventually you start like uh, taking advantage of this like convergence property that you expect okay and there are other hyperparameters you mentioned learning rate another one is batch size well what is batch what is batch size great so in standard traditional deep learning say like 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 when you're training a convolutional neural network which is one of these very popular deep learning models for for image recognition and computer vision right so say you're training this sort of image neural network the way you would train it is you first curate a large data set of millions or like you know thousands of images say they're like cat images and dog images and and the goal is for your your model to figure out whether or not you're training a small like you know whether or not the image has a a cat or a dog okay so the batch size tells me that per each update of my model how many data points am i going to look at in order to craft this update, right? So somehow there's like, you know, some calculus that goes into this process and you can come up with with like a descent, like an update value. And this update value is again predetermined this determined by running these these data points that you're sampling from your larger data set through your model, checking where your model what your model got wrong, and then calculating this update. So at very, very high level, you have this subsample of data points from your data set. You have your model, and then you have this like back, you have this like updating um, mechanism. And the batch size simply tells me how big of a subset am I going to take that is going to inform this update that I'm going to take next. Does it make sense? It does, yes. So the way, the, what's a good way of thinking about it? Okay, so here, here's kind of like the high level idea is that you want to increase the batch size as you go on training, as you continue training. And the reason is because if you have a small batch size, that means your, your update is actually a little bit noisy. So the update, the true update is well, you might imagine like if you had all the infinite amount of data and you had the perfect data set, like your model should calculate this part, should be moving in this particular direction, right? It should be going straight into the middle of the bowl. Now, the problem is if you only take a very sub, a small subsample, it's like, it's like your map is very noisy, right? So then if your map is very noisy, you're kind of going to go in some arbitrary direction. It might be somewhat correlated with the true north, but it's, it's, you know, it's full of noise and it's random. Um, there's a, a certain amount of randomness to it. Now, what's interesting about deep learning is that there has been empirical re like research being done and showing that it's, it's typically actually better to have a small batch size in the very beginning and a large batch size at the very end of training. So what does that really mean, right? So that means that at the very end of training, you want uh, to have very precise steps towards your goal. And you want to denoise your updates at the very end. And on the other hand, it's okay in the very beginning that you have very small batch steps. And the I guess maybe the physical analogy to think about is like, you're not simply in a bowl, but you're in the landscape, right? And there's ups and downs, ups and downs. There's a lot of like local minima, and then there's a very, very deep place that you want to be. But maybe you start like way far ahead and you might not be able to reach the center of this larger, deeper valley by, by immediately. So what the research has shown is that if you take these small, like these very noisy steps, the noisy updates somehow helps you guide guide you into that deeper, wider valley in which after you've entered that wider valley, wider, deeper valley, you can just take, you can be very confident about reaching the very bottom. There are other hyperparameters we could mention. 
Do you want to give an overview of a few other hyperparameters that just illustrate why the hyperparameter sweep and the hyperparameter tuning are important concepts? Yeah, so so there's other hyperparameters that you might you know commonly tune include model size or or uh, the shape of your model, the different layers that you're going to use, or you might choose some algorithm hyperparameters such as learning rate, you know, batch size, etc. And finally, there's some. Oftentimes, you might actually tune the way you process your data. So, so you might make some images. You might have some sort of perturbation that you apply to the images so that your model learns better. And those perturbations are usually configured in such a way that there are. Uh, parameters to be set, so those are typically the wide, like the broad categories of hyperparameters that you might tune. And one of the more complicated things about hyperparameter tuning is that some of these hyperparameters, some of these values, might actually be interdependent or or related to each other. So the tricky thing about having you know very precise and very fast hyperparameter tuning is that you have to trade off between you know, change like optimizing one single hyperparameter at once versus optimizing many. So typically, you might you know say you have a bunch of different hyperparameters that you could change. It would be it would be exponential. It would basically be infeasible to try out every single combination of every single hyperparameter that you have. So it's very much up to the user to sort of narrow down that scope and decide what is the most reasonable space. To be searching over, and then maybe just take like the best one that you find from that reasonable subspace as the parameters that you end up using for your, your machine learning model. Can we explore the term hyperparameter sweep in more detail? Could you give a definition and an example? Yeah, I would say a hyperparameter sweep would simply be an evaluation of multiple multiple different hyperparameters. Yeah, that, that that's like the most simple simple uh, definition. So an example of this might simply be, say, I have, you know, 10 different models that I want to choose. The first model has, has a, a, a size of, you know, like 10 megabytes. And then the largest model has a size of 100, meg- 100 gigabytes. And I will take the same, like I'll, you know, I'll take everything else constant and I'll train each model until they converge. And then finally, now I have a t- a 10 different you know, models with different performances. And what I'll do is take the best one to use for my application. So when I'm training a model, when am I going to be tweaking the hyperparameters? Right. So I guess, is your question more like during the training of a single one of these Hyperparameters, like you know, a different model size. When do I change hyperparameters in in that process, or do you mean like when I'm developing a model from like the collection, like the entire machine learning workflow? Where does hyperparameter tuning come in? Entire machine learning workflow. Got it. Yeah. No, that's a great question. So typically, what you might do is you might uh, you know collect your data, you you build some prototypes of your model and your hyper your you know your model your algorithm your machine learning uh, process right so you have this prototype and um, what you might do then is you might start to scale it out or you might start to make things um, you know like your model a little bit bigger your algorithm a little bit more complex and it's actually a mix and match or it's sort of like inter intertwined within the training process so some people, you know, they take some rough prototype of their model and machine learning training thing, and they'll just run a hyperparameter sweep across all the different configurations that could try on this prototype. And because it's a prototype, it's easy to evaluate. It's not so expensive. The hyperparameter tuning uh, job ends up very quick. Then like the prototype will then, so the best configuration and such will graduate, so to speak, into something more complex, and they will just train that thing from start to end. So that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is 
you might build out your full prototype, it gets very complex. And now it's so complex, you have so many different configuration parameters to tune. Then to, to before you, you know, ship something to release, you'll, you'll, you'll set it into a hyperparameter tuning job. It'll, the, this, this massive job will produce a single model that, that you can ship off to the, you know, your uh, service layer that, that will deploy the model. Okay. Now, what is hard about the process of tweaking and tuning hyperparameters? So let's see. So hard, so difficulty, as you know, is like sort of dependent on, on the user, right? So I guess there's, there's a couple of ways to answer this. One is that, you know, the, the landscape of hyperparameters, the, the different configurations that you can try, they're not it's a very non, like it's, it's not a friendly landscape, right? So by definition, this sort of tuning process can take a very long time. It can require complicated algorithms. And a lot of this expertise might not simply be in the, you know, in the knowledge domain of a lot of practitioners. I would say the second big uh, complication about hyperparameter tuning is like, it's, it's easily scalable and it ends up being that if you really want to scale things out, uh, you dive into a bunch of distributed systems problems, right? And so as a data scientist, it, it's right now it's a little bit, I mean, you want to be doing the data, uh, you want to be working with the data, you don't really want to be building out distributed systems and such. And so I would, yeah, so I guess to summarize my answer, there's the complicated problem itself, and then also the complexity around the infrastructure that is needed to to orchestrate and execute this this workload that doesn't necessarily reside in in the domain knowledge of data scientists today. I see. So, if I understand correctly, the ideal world is that I have a configuration file that includes my hyperparameters, and I can just update these and seamlessly have my infrastructure respond to the updated hyperparameters. The reality is that today, if I update my hyperparameters, that's going to change the number of cores it's, that are running and like the type of cores I need, the type of memory configuration I need, which is not like going to be magically taken care of under the hood. It's going to cause a bunch of exceptions when I try to run this new model. Yeah, so I would say... Yeah, definitely. Like if you're trying out a new model, that's, that's typically one of the biggest problems, right? Like your mo- the models are getting bigger and bigger by the day and whatever worked for your previous infrastructure will just like not work next year. Okay. Uh, but what was what I was saying, correct? Like if I update my hyperparameters, is that going to potentially make the underlying infrastructure not good enough or not the right infrastructure I need? I guess I would clarify that to say, Typically, what you might do is you would you would just make it simple for yourself, and you wouldn't actually change these hyperparameters that that blow up your infrastructure. If you if it does, then you realize, okay, I'm I'm not going to touch this. It's it's too complicated for me right now, and and let me just do something simpler. Okay, got it. What kinds of tooling do we need to build to make hyperparameter training and tuning easier to do? Right, so that's a great question. I think the way I would look at this is is from sort of like the data scientist perspective. They might be, you know, this person might be using R, they might like barely know Python. And if you ask them to do, you know, like large scale distributed hyperparameter tuning, that's that's sort of just that's that's gonna be like a year of their uh, a year's worth of work just simply setting up that that infrastructure in a reliable and a cost-efficient way, right? So I would say some of the more complicated, you know, issues regarding hyperparameter tuning is that A, because it's so expensive, you want to leverage, you, you, do, you probably won't be buying machines, you'll be leveraging the cloud. And on the cloud, you'll probably be, you know, leveraging spot instances in order to reduce your, your GPU or your, you know, machine learning prices by, by 3x. And if you're on spot instances, then you have to deal with fault tolerance, right? So, so that's the first problem. The second problem then is like, like uh, if you're you're if you have this sort of uh, large machine learning sweep, you you probably want to have something that 
that takes care of all of the distributed systems pipe like plumbing where where all of the logs get centralized in a certain place all of the model if you're downloading weights or downloading data you take care of like that has to be taken care of too and you probably don't want machines to be you know your hundreds of machines to be up at all times because you're maybe only running a hyperparameter sweep like once a week and so so then you, you run into you know problems of of auto scaling and logging right so i would just say maybe traditionally like fault tolerance auto scaling logging these these are all all like just some of the problems that that someone is trying to do distributed hyperparameter tuning will face and most likely will not have the expertise to do that okay well tune is the scalable hyperparameter training library that you have built explain what tune is Raytune is a scalable library for uh, parameter tuning and experiment execution. It solves the following problems. So there's three problems that it solves. Like it provides great optimization algorithms. Uh, it simplifies the distributed systems aspect and it reduces the code complexity for these machine learning engineers. Yeah, so let me expand on all of these. A lot of the times nowadays and more so every day, we have these machine learning tasks that are becoming more and more complex and and they depend on these hyperparameters that we just talked about, right? And in order to navigate this this very difficult problem of optimizing hyperparameters, there's a bunch of algorithms that researchers have developed in order to to tackle these. Now that's what Tune provides is a lot of a, a many of these algorithms straight out of the box they're turnkey solutions with easy to use abstractions that uh, users can plug and play to their, tr- their machine learning script and it will just work out of the box and scale seamlessly the second problem that we address is the simplification of these distributed systems right so a lot of model developers are rarely distributed systems engineers i think you might be unique in in talking to like maybe in the Rise Lab at UC Berkeley, you'll have you know this like both both character traits in one in a couple people, but it's I would say like majority of of users or practitioners doing machine learning are not do not have distributed systems backgrounds or yeah or even coursework. So what Tune Ray Tune provides is it abstracts away all of these problems of distributed systems that you might need to leverage or you might encounter when you're doing distributed hyperparameter tuning, including but not limited to fault tolerance, auto-scaling, uh, distributed logging, resource scheduling, and such, so, so on and so forth. And finally, Tune, Raytune provides a lot of utilities in order to simplify the code complexity that might come up when you're doing these distributed systems work, right? So Tune automatically handles checkpointing, uh, automatically puts visualizations and automatically provides great log files all centralized in one, in one place for, for users to, to easily access and, and work with. These all sound like useful features. Why is this a new thing? I mean, we've had machine learning systems in production for many, many years. And at this point, you know, I guess less than a decade, but still that's a lot of time. Why now? Why is there a time for a new system for scalable hyperparameter tuning? Didn't this exist in the Spark ecosystem? Spark has one of these this this really famous library, this MLlib, right? And what Spark is great for is traditional machine learning, where you're working with linear models, uh, random forests, etc. Now, one of the more complicated things about Deep learning, which sort of came a little bit after this wave of Spark popularity, or perhaps around the same time, is that deep learning is a very compute intensive, has a different optimization. It's sort of like a different algorithm providing you opportunities to to further optimize, and and finally requires a lot of like GPUs, right? So I would say one of the the, one of the key aspects that Spark is unable to fulfill is this this idea that well let me let me try to this structure this a little bit better. So Spark w- works in sort of a a bulk synchronous process 
processing mechanism. It like it executes things in stages, and oftentimes in hyperparameter tuning for deep learning models, that sort of like stage-wise execution doesn't really quite. F- it ends up forcing you to to wait for stragglers. It ends up making it un very difficult for you to to implement some of these more advanced optimization methods. And so you need something a little bit more flexible than a large, um, you know, like MapReduce structure. And Ray was was sort of built for these machine learning, these these fine grain machine learning tasks, and therefore providing a scalable hyperparameter tuning system on top of Ray allows us to leverage better optimizations. It is more machine learning ecosystem friendly because it supports GPUs. And also, you know, simplifies all distributed systems problems that you might have before. So Tune is built on top of Ray. Can you describe the interface between Tune and what sits beneath it? Right, yeah. So that's a great question. So Ray, for the listeners that don't know about it, is a uh, distributed system mainly for distributing Python right now. And it provides a nice, simple-to-use interface for for distributing components of your program. So there's a actor API and there's like a task API, and those allow you to to distribute uh, functions and classes in Python. So essentially, if you have a standard, you know, machine learning or you know some standard python program you can compose different parts of your 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 python program into to ray components and then now you can scale your python program seamlessly without having changed much of your code so given that we have this actor a- api and this task api tune leverages ray's actor apis to run distributed hyperparameter tuning jobs each actor, which is essentially a class and runs, could run on a different process, different GPU, different, different node, contains a single execution of this machine learning process, right? So this, it t- contains the model, t- contains the algorithm that you're optimizing the model. And this allows us to easily parallelize um, the training process and interact with these training processes in a, a more fine-grained fashion. So you might have things structured in, in, in separate, so you might have a training process that's structured into multiple stages of a single, you know, a single machine learning model that you're gonna train in multiple stages. And because you have this class interface, you can intercept and do different things in between these different stages. And this sort of flexibility that's provided by Ray's actor API presents like a great opportunity or, you know, like prevents, provides us a, a great opportunity to, to implement these, these optimizations that you might do in between the stages of a machine learning training process. You've touched on this a little bit, but can you go a little bit deeper into why actors and tasks are necessary primitives for making Tune work the way that it does? One interesting thing is that we actually don't use the Raytune doesn't use the the task API. It it actually just fully leverages the actor API, and uh, the reason why you don't use tasks is because a lot of these these machine learning uh, libraries are carry heavy initialization costs. So what they'll do is you know they'll kick off. The GPU kernel, they'll have to like claim GPU memory and that entire and initializing the GPU plus initializing higher level libraries like TensorFlow or PyTorch, that, that stuff all takes a lot of time. And so the reason why tasks don't quite work for us is because if you say you did one update or say, say you split your training process into multiple stages and you wanted to like process execute these different stages in different in different tasks, you would be incurring a huge overhead cost of, of starting up. So a typical stage of what I'm talking about in the machine learning process might be a single uh, pass over the data set and you want to do multiple passes over the data set. In machine learning, we call that an epoch. And every pass over the data set 
the machine learning model gets better and better, but you now introduce, because each pass of the data set is dependent on the, the you know, you're training the same model over and over again, it becomes unwieldy to, to execute each pass of the data set in, in a separate task as, as we described before. Now, what's unique about being able to separate these stages, these passes over the data set into separate like execution chunks is that it allows us to modify the training process during training. So that might include terminating a, a training process that is underperforming Right, so that allows us to release resources, try another model, and you know, hopefully it'll do better. Or it might allow us to perturb the hyperparameters during training. So this is gets along the lines of this dynamic hyperparameter schedules that we talked about before. And finally, it allows us to maybe even allocate more resources to this model, this training process. Right, so so maybe it can train faster or even better because we know that it's a very promising model. So I guess to, to really take a step back, the actor model allows us to break up the training process into executable chunks while maintaining state on that without, without incurring the startup overhead. And by breaking things up to chunks, we can insert like better optimizations or hyperparameter tuning techniques to, to make our tuning process more efficient. One thing I want to know is, does hyperparameter tuning play a different role in reinforcement learning than in traditional uh, supervised learning processes? Yeah, so hyperparameter tuning and reinforcement learning is tricky. The reason is because the reinforcement learning models are they don't train very well or they don't train very consistently, right? So you might have a, say you're, you're doing, when you're doing reinforcement learning, you might be doing some sort of control task. And by control task, you can think of say like a robot walking. And the reason why something might have very high, the robot walking task might have high variance is because it's inherently sequential and like the amount of reward that you get for the sequential process increases as as you um, progress, right? And it's very possible that that because you have the sequential nature of reinforcement learning tasks, the failure, the probability of failure is is quite high in between tasks, or like it's it's quite high in in inside the inside this reinforcement learning task, and so. Um, as a result, you might imagine like, like you have, let's say like, say like you're in the maze, right? And your reinforcement learning task tells you to get to the, to like the up other side of the, like to get to one particular destination in the maze. Now, what you can imagine is like you're, you're in the middle of the maze and suddenly like you take like a wrong turn and then you get penalized like super badly for taking that wrong turn. But it was just part of, it was part of like randomness that you took that wrong turn. So what ends up happening is these tasks often have a very high variance and you might be feeding, you might be trying to optimize. When you're optimizing the sort of high variance metric, it becomes very hard for you to do that. And, and traditional hyperparameter optimization for traditional machine learning assumes that like these things, the, these variances eventually or like the variance is quite low and the performance of your model can be easily measured. That's not the case for reinforcement learning and that's why it makes it difficult to do traditional hyperparameter tuning on reinforcement learning. Does that make sense? It does. So you're saying that because reinforcement learning is, it's harder to judge exactly where you are in the, the exploration space it's harder to do intelligent hyperparameter tuning. People at Google figure it out was that a lot of times if you just, you know, tweak the hyperparameters in the middle of training, sort of arbitrarily, it's somehow the reinforcement learning model does better. And this sort of technique is called population-based training, but it's, 
it's essentially you have you know this model that you're you're executing in stages and you know after after a couple after a couple of minutes you decide hey i'm gonna you know increase the learning rate or decrease the learning rate and see how how that works and if it works well then good if it works poorly then we're gonna terminate it and somehow they they've shown that this population based training method works very well for reinforcement learning better than better than other methods the tagline for your library tune is scalable hyperparameter tuning what's hard to scale about hyperparameter tuning or what is unscalable right i guess it's again quite because every task is is independent of each other it's easy like you might think okay this program is is easily parallelizable i guess what gets a little bit complicated is is that you will probably want to do both distributed training like distributed data parallel training in addition to distributed hyperparameter tuning so now you have like a tree of things that you want to scale you want to scale all these different machine learning jobs and each of the machine learning jobs themselves want to scale widely and you know like leverage multiple nodes and so what's i guess the tagline really is about as a as a user as a person who's doing data science you can leverage all of this in like 10 lines of code one of the magical things about ray is that or in ray tune is that uh, when you write your code you write it for a single laptop or a single a single function or you know a single core and suddenly like you you turn on like num gpus equals 100 or 1000 and suddenly suddenly you can leverage your entire your entire AWS cluster without having changed their code at all. So I think that puts us in a position that, that I guess makes it scalable in comparison to, to what people might be doing today. Tell me more about what happens in a distributed experiment with Tune. So let's see. So in the distributed experiment, we will have you obviously you have some 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 driver that is is driven essentially it's like an event loop and the events of this event loop are these different training processes or it's like different the completion of a stage of a different training process so you can imagine you have a thousand machines you have a thousand uh, machine learning processes each of them is executing one of these stages, it's doing a pass over the data set. As soon as one of them completes, it will notify the, the event loop uh, through Ray, right? And and Tune will have certain callbacks within the processing stage that either, you know, change resource allocation, change hyperparameters, or, or like terminate the job or whatever. And that sort of like processing takes place on the driver and is then sent back to that that pending task, that pending execution, um, that pending training process that that has just finished their stage. And so, you know, this event loop model allows us to then also detect failures when we had nodes that that go down, uh, and and tell us that we have to you know migrate a particular training process to another node, or if more nodes come up. Because the you know the auto scaling is kicking in, then we will identify. Hey, look, there's new resources that we can leverage to to place more training processes on. Does that answer your question? It does. Now that we're talking about distributed experimentation, let's talk about fault tolerance. Why is fault tolerance important in distributed training? Great question. So I think fault tolerance is more most most important in when your your jobs are expensive to train so what you you might the the failure mode here is like suddenly during your training process it's you know it's eight hours you've been running your hyperparameter tuning job for for overnight and then at the very last minute amazon takes away 90 percent of your cluster because you know i don't know like pinterest is starting to run their jobs 
in the morning. And so now you're, you're, you're left with 20% of your cluster and a bunch of your jobs died. And, you know, because they ran for eight hours, it's probably worth, you know, $600, $700 of, of, an, of an experiment. And what would really suck is if you had to do that all over again. Right, so ideally, the, the dream here is that you have, you know, a thing that you can just go to sleep and wake up the next morning and you might have had all of your machines gone, but except for one and somehow your hyperparameter tuning job still completes. So yeah, so I guess the, the fault tolerance story here is to make sure that um, you don't lose work and that also you can continue executing when you do have failures. This all sits on top of Ray. Can you talk more about why Ray presents good primitives for building Tune? Yeah. So one of the things that that was nice about Ray is its ability to handle GPUs very nicely. And what that means is it helps isolate the GPU for a particular training process, whereas uh, typically you might need to set a bunch of different environment variables just to configure and and target a particular GPU. And it, that's only, I mean, the typical process is, you know, you set all these environment variables and you have to do that across the cluster on every single machine. Tune takes care of that for you. So that ends up being, you know, like a great feature add for, or like a great usability feature for, for machine learning or deep learning jobs. Now, I would say another big thing is that, uh, you know, Ray is Pythonic. Uh, it's very much targeted towards the, towards like the Python ecosystem. So machine learning also being in the Python ecosystem interplays really nicely with Ray. Finally, like the actor system, I think there's, there's a big gap in the machine learning ecosystem for, for a, a actor API. There does exist, but I think the benefit of Ray's actor APIs include, you know, like the programming model being very simple in addition to the ability to leverage shared memory uh, across different, on, on a single machine, across different processes. So there's, I guess, a very unique set combination of, of features that Ray provides that allows us to easily implement hyperparameter tuning and these distributed deep learning jobs for for, for building a hyperparameter tuning tool. Let's zoom out. How does Tune help a machine learning researcher? What value are they going to get out of Tune? Right, so maybe the high level three sentences, scale out your, you know, like burst out to 100 nodes without needing to think about uh, distributed systems and leverage state-of-the-art hyperparameter tuning techniques for optimizing your hyperparameters. Um, and finally, you don't need to worry about, or like take care of downstream tasks such as analyzing your hyperparameters and obtaining checkpoints and logs all in one like really easy to use solution. And what value do you see Tune having in the future? Are you adding additional features and functionality to it? I think, yeah, I mean, I would say the two biggest directions that we probably want to go are towards the sort of serverless model of, of, of deployment and just going towards a more, trying to push the sort of elastic nature of, of tuning and training. So I would say the two visions here would be like you can, you know, deploy or you can, you can launch your, your, 100 GPU tuning job from your, you know, local Jupyter notebook or your local, local shell without, or actually your local Python process without, without leaving the, your development environment that's local to your laptop. So that's one, one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is, is pushing this like nature of elasticity. So hyperparameter tuning oftentimes requires, you know, it's known to be long expensive, time-consuming. But I think 
what if we could, you know, do hyperparameter tuning in the order of minutes, right? So you have models that train very quickly, you burst to a thousand GPUs at once and suddenly everything is done and you didn't need to pay, you pay the same amount as if you had uh, waited eight hours for the hyperparameter tuning job to, to finish. So some of the research that we're doing in the, the RISE lab is, is trying to explore what are, you know, what are the limitations of a very fast, very, very elastic hyperparameter tuning and what are the barriers towards like a, a perfect serverless vision for machine learning and hyperparameter tuning. Okay. Well, any other perspectives on the future that you can predict for for us? Uh, taking, <laughs> you know, taking an even broader view of the landscape, taking in things like TensorFlow and other machine learning tools, machine learning companies like weights and biases. What When you zoom out and you look at the context overall, where is the industry headed? Interesting question here. Let's see. So... I would imagine there is going to be a there is going to be many services and um, libraries that are built more towards people who are who are not machine learning experts, right? So this ends up allowing us to deploy in different applications and perhaps also allows business analysts and business intelligence units to to leverage state of the art machine learning tools. So maybe something like no, like the sort of like low code wave will also reach machine learning. And I would say another big part here is, is like the ease of the other one, I think is just like faster things will get faster. Right. So, you know, we have these, these cloud GPUs are, are becoming easier and easier to leverage. In fact, TensorFlow is baking into their training interfaces, a cloud endpoint. So that will automatically essentially have a serverless feel to it and you can deploy things or you can you know, execute a training run on, on like dozens of GPUs and on, on their you know, Google AI platform by simply having added a single parameter to your TensorFlow code. So I think more of this ability for for developers to to leverage cloud resources in a very seamless fashion and then obviously to scale out their cloud resources i think will be a huge trend in the near future okay that's a great conclusion richard thanks for coming back on the show it's been great talking to you thanks jeff it was a pleasure <laughs>